Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. It's always wonderful to pack in all of these things in one service, and we still have a handful of baptisms to see and witness and celebrate with after we're done. But uh, now's the time that we get to focus on this text as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. And so I would ask you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32. That's the section I'll be reading and that we'll be discussing this morning. Let's begin as we always do by reading the text together. If you don't have a Bible, would love for you to grab one somewhere around you in the seat pocket in front of you or along your aisle there so that you can have it, read the text and follow along with us. So let's go ahead and begin by reading the text this morning, okay? Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor of Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. He said, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? What a beautiful passage. 
Now, what we're seeing in this passage is that Jesus, after the resurrection, is now bringing clarity, he's now bringing correction, and he's now bringing convincing proof to his disciples. So Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, is now bringing clarity, correction, and convincing proof to his disciples. That's what's happening. And that's what he will be doing for the rest of his time on earth. Bringing clarity, bringing correction, and bringing convincing proof to his disciples. He's already started with this process. Remember? His appearances to the group of women, Mary Magdalene, and, uh, and the rest, he continues this correcting process now with the disciples. And he's going to continue this clarifying and correcting process until he ascends to heaven. He's going to clarify, correct, convince them. And so appropriately, I've titled, entitled today, Clarity from the Christ. Clarity from the Christ. And we could really... We could really title from verse 13 on to the rest of the book that same thing. And we can at this point wrap up a basic outline of what's happened in the book of Luke. Now that we enter into this last section of this gospel, which is Jesus now bringing clarity, bringing correction, bringing proof to these disciples, we've entered into this last section of the gospels. We can provide a, a pretty basic outline of Luke's gospel. In the first nine and a half chapters or so, we're given testimony after testimony that this Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. That's what the first nine and a half chapters of this gospel are about. Proof after proof, testimony after testimony. He's the Christ. Once that's established until about halfway through chapter 19, Jesus predicts his sufferings. He trains his disciples. He refutes false teachers. And he does all of this until we enter the passion narrative. So Jesus, on his journey to Jerusalem, uh, trains his disciples, teaches his disciples, refutes false teachers, and, um, and he predicts his sufferings. Chapter 19, we enter into the passion narrative where Jesus really pronounces judgment against all the rulers. He's killed and he's buried. Chapter 24, as we enter that, we see his resurrection. And he focuses then for the rest of the book, which is where we're at now, on his true disciples. After the resurrection, he's focused now on his real, true, genuine disciples. And he's providing clarity. He's providing comfort. He's convincing them. He's correcting them, he's clarifying them, and he's going to end the book by charging them to go to the nations. And that's where we're at. He's focusing on his real disciples, comforting, convincing, correcting, clarifying, and then charging. And in just the past week, think about what's happened for these true disciples. Just the past week. I mean, think about this. Since the triumphal entry on Monday... The notion of him overthrowing Rome and establishing an immediate physical kingdom has been absolutely shattered. 
They didn't have any idea in their mind that the Messiah that they expected, Christ proved to be that through his teaching and through his miracles. They had no expectation that this Messiah, this Christ, would actually be killed by Rome rather than overthrow it. They're shattered. His true disciples believed he was the Christ, but they've not fully grasped yet that it was necessary for him to die as the Messiah because what he came to bring was salvation for sinners. They haven't fully grasped this yet, uh, that he's come to bring a spiritual salvation, that their greatest foe is not Rome. Their greatest foe is their sin. And it's necessary for a substitute to die to pay the penalty. The Messiah would be fully God, live a perfect life, the only one qualified to die on the behalf of another, and yet fully man so that he could die, and that was the plan the whole time. They haven't fully grasped this yet. And this is what Jesus has come to do. He's not come to overthrow, to defeat, to free them from Rome. He and his coming here now and his first coming is bringing a spiritual salvation through dying on the cross and freeing them from their greatest foe, which is sin, which is sin. Therefore, for this to be accomplished, Jesus must, and the emphasis is on must, die. He must live innocently, he must die as a substitute, and he must raise. That's what is necessary for the Messiah to accomplish in order to bring about salvation. And he did this. He did this perfectly up to this point. He's done all of this perfectly. Remember this, in his incarnation, his full deity, his full humanity ensures his full perfection, his eternal capacity to pay for sin and still live, which no one else can, Yet his ability as a human to die as a representative of mankind and as a substitute. At the Last Supper, he made all of this clear. He was the substitutionary sacrifice. He was God's lamb. He would provide this atoning death. He was the true Passover lamb. And we see him go from there where he's sweating blood in anticipation of this in the garden. He's uh, anticipating being separated from the Father, something he had never known before because of sin. He doesn't want to be separated, but he knows God's predetermined plan, and he's going to obey it. We see in his arrest his full innocence, seven times made clear he is fully innocent. We've seen him suffer this physical death. We've seen the darkness, God's wrath on sin, on the cross, the smothering darkness. Then we see him being confirmed dead. He actually died. And we see that in a symphony of proofs that he actually died. We see all these testimonies. Along the way, he is put in a tomb. And God's predetermined plan of his son dying has been completed as predicted. Then on the third day, he rises from the dead, able to give new life to those who would be united to him by faith. All of this has been perfectly accomplished. It was necessary, and he accomplished it. So he's completed this work. He's done what was necessary. He's accomplished what makes salvation possible. But the disciples are confused. The disciples are confused. 
So Jesus is gonna come now and make this clear. He's gonna come now and make all of this clear. He'll convince them that he's risen from the dead. He'll correct their misunderstanding. He'll comfort them with the idea that this was a victorious mission. He didn't lose. He'll clarify his gospel by expositing the scriptures to them. He's gonna challenge them to proclaim this gospel to the ends of the earth, to the nations, after they receive the Spirit. So in our section today, as Jesus comes to provide this clarity, how does he do it? Well, as I mentioned, here's how he provides clarity. He exposits the scriptures. He reads the scriptures to them, tells them of the scriptures, explains the scriptures, and applies the scriptures. He sticks with the text. In addition to this, he sovereignly opens their eyes. The exposure to scripture, the explanation of scripture, and the sovereignty of God provides clarity for the disciples. It corrects, it, it corrects their, their fluctuating and their tossing. They're vacillating right now between experience and their own wisdom. They're vacillating between their own interpretation of these events and their own misunderstandings. They're fluctuating between all of this about Christ and his kingdom. They're all over the place. These disciples are all over the place. So what does Christ do to provide clarity? He shows them, explains to them the scriptures, and in his sovereignty does that work through the scriptures. Now let me tell you, that's the same thing that you need to do if you have confusion about the things of God. Maybe you are someone who's not clear why Christ came. Maybe you're someone who's not clear about what it means for his death to count for you, to have salvation. Maybe you're unclear about how all this works. Maybe you've had some kind of wacky doctrine and teaching in your life. The way in which you will have clarity is by seeing the scriptures and God in his sovereignty, opening your eyes and providing clarity by his spirit as you observe the scriptures, as you understand the true meaning of the text. And so this is what Jesus is doing here. It is the very first thing Jesus turns to when he begins his response. In the text here, if you look at it, in verses 13 through 32, the first thing he turns to when he gives his response is the scriptures. He tells them that they haven't understood the scriptures, and then in verse 27, he explains to them the scriptures. And so he says their misunderstanding of their scriptures is the problem and Jesus then, the most perfect expositor in the world, the most perfect expositor the world has ever known, he explains the text, that's exposition, explaining the passage. And the scriptures do the convincing work. When we get to verses 44 through 45, just look at it. When we get to verses 44 through 45, he does it again. He says, these are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the what? Scriptures. Jesus will do the same thing. And this is what Jesus has been doing, by the way. Think about this. In his ministry, Luke chapter four, he opened the scope of his ministry by opening the scroll of Isaiah in front of the sanctuary and explaining the meaning of it. 
And because of his teaching, he was kicked out of his hometown. Um, some chapter, uh, uh, the same chapter, he continued to teach with authority. Verse 43 of that same chapter in Luke chapter four, he said that he must continue to preach in town after town. John six fifty nine says, Jesus said the same things in the synagogue while teaching in Capernaum. This teaching here is a, is a participle. He's continuing to do this thing, which is teaching. So listen now, Jesus, the son of God, God only had one son and what he did continually and his time on earth was preach, teach, explain the scriptures to the people. He opened, them the script, opened to them the scriptures and explained the truth. And this is what he's gonna do for his disciples here. This is what he's gonna do for his disciples. And so as we understand this, just, this is what Jesus is doing in this text. We're gonna get to our points in a moment. I'm just giving you the grand scope. This is what Jesus is doing. He's teaching. He's gonna make clear to them the truth about him, about his death, about his salvation, and how they are to respond. He brings it with authority. He brings it with, so they have understanding. He brings it so they have conviction. He wanted them to understand the scriptures rightly. He will read to them the scriptures and explain to them the scriptures. He wants people to understand the gospel at this point, to understand their sin, to understand God's predetermined plan, understand the scripture's narrative so that they would believe his messiahship and that they would proclaim it to other people. And so this person here, Jesus Christ, the son of God who accomplished salvation is now providing clarity through his sovereignty and the scriptures. And this is what Paul tells us that the scriptures will do. In 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, says the scriptures are able to make you wise, listen now, for salvation. They're able to make you wise for salvation. In verse 16, it says they're divinely inspired. They'll teach what's true and convict you of sin. And so this is what Jesus does. He's gonna provide clarity for their superficial, deficient understanding by explaining to them the scriptures. So, Let's begin as we look at this text completely. We're gonna see two points. Number one, we'll see the confusion in verses 13 through 24, and this will just be what we cover this morning because there's a lot in this whole section. Verses 13 through 24, we're gonna see this confusion. And then next week, as we pick it back up in verses 25 through 32, we're gonna see the clarity. The confusion and the clarity. This is what we see in this text. You can divide it up pretty simply into these two portions. Let's look first now at the confusion. In verses 13 through 24, it says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with, with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus, of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. 
Moreover, some of our women, the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they went, they did not find the body. They came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. So we see here the confusion. In verse 13, it starts with that very day, that very day. So this is Sunday. This is still Sunday. It's the same day as the resurrection. That very day means it was the same what? Day. The same day as the events surrounding the resurrection, which took place that morning. If you remember, this is, this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so now this is simply Sunday afternoon. It's been a big day, hasn't it? But if you remember the morning, and some people... Um, Last week's message wasn't recorded, but some people are asking me, can you lay out this kind of timeline of the resurrection? It's all over the place, and it is. But if you remember, let me just summarize it for you. A group of women set out for the tomb. On their way, they're discussing who's gonna roll the stone away. Mary Magdalene goes on ahead. While they're all on their way, there's a localized earthquake at the tomb. The guards are terrified by the angels. They roll away the stone. The, the, the stone is rolled away by the angels. The guards are then terrified. They head into the city to meet the Jewish leaders. They devise a lie. At that time, Mary Magdalene, who's on ahead of the rest of the ladies, arrives at the tomb. She's told that the stone, uh, she sees that the sto stone is rolled away. She goes then and tells Peter and John and the others and, uh, and that the tomb is empty. And then... Um, the other ladies arrive. They see that the tomb is empty. The angels speak to them, tell them what happened. They go and tell the rest of the disciples that group does. And Jesus appears to them on the way to that upper room. Then finally, Peter and John arrive because Mary Magdalene's now told them. They arrive back at the tomb. They see the tomb empty, the grave closed. They head back to go tell the other disciples. Then Mary Magdalene arrives back at the tomb. She came back. She sees the angels and then she sees Jesus. Then she goes back and tells the disciples. So then the women, Peter and John, Mary Magdalene, all end up back at the room together with the rest of the apostles and disciples. And they're all saying the same things, which is that Jesus is not there. And uh, that's why verses 22 through 23, if you look uh, in this text here that we're in today, say they, they testify to this. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of the angels who said that he was alive. So they're all back at the upper room. They're all saying the same thing. That's all happened in this one day so far, from when it was still dark in the morning until about, uh, until about noon. This has all happened. And so now... At this point, this same day, after they're all discussing this, verse 13 tells us, and uh, if you look at verse 29, it tells us it's actually close to evening. So verse 29, look at that. It says they wanted him to stay with them because it was toward evening. And so we're, we're kind of moving into the later part of the afternoon here. Verse 13 says it's the same day as all of that. Now, two of them on this same day, verse 13, 
two of them are going to a village. Who's these two men? Well, it just says two of them, two of them. Who's the them referring to? Well, it's referring to back in verse nine, it says, returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the 11 and all of the rest. So here's where we're talking about this. Listen now, the 11 and all of the rest, meaning this larger group of disciples, two of them, okay, two of them. Um, We don't know who these people are. We know that uh, one of them is named what? Cleopas. And we know that this is not one of the apostles because if we look at verse 33, these same men arose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found who? The 11. So this is part of the larger group of disciples. One of them's name's Cleopas, and this is not one of the 11 or not part of the the apostles. Remember, Judas is dead. There's only 11 at, at this point. And where are they headed? They're headed on the, uh, uh, to a village named Emmaus. Now, we don't know where Emmaus is, um, except for the fact that it's about seven miles from where? Jerusalem. And so that's all we know. It's not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures. Actually, there's only one other parallel account to this in Mark 16, which doesn't say much. It only gives us two verses about this actual event. And... Uh, And all it does is tell us that this place was out in the country, okay? So they're going out to the country about seven miles away from Jerusalem. They're probably coming back from the group that's now all heard the same things. It's Sunday afternoon towards evening. They're heading out. And uh, this is part of the larger group of disciples, two of the part of the larger group of disciples. and, um, and, And they're on their way. And so verse 14 we see that they were talking with each other along the way about all these things that had happened. They were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. In other words, they're confused. They're devastated. They they don't know what to believe. This Messiah, the one that they thought was the one to redeem Israel, which they even say later, we thought he was the one to redeem Israel. He's dead. They've got no no understanding of a dead Messiah. They're confused now. They have no idea what's going on. They believe that Jesus was the Christ, but they have no clarity. And, uh, And so they still had this temporal, immediate, physical expectation of the Messiah, not fully understanding the necessity of his work, which is to die for sinners. So verse 15 As we look at it, they're talking with each other about all these things. And by the way, all these things there refers to more than just whether or not the resurrection happened. I know right now we're just in the shadow of the resurrection, but they're talking about more than that. As we're going to see later on in this text, they're talking about the whole event from, from the entrance to Jerusalem all the way on through the rejection, the trials, the murder of Christ, his death and burial. They're talking about all of it. They're trying to process all that Jesus had, had done. And it's so verse 15, look at it. I'm just walking you verse by verse through this portion of scripture. The only thing that I wanna do is help you understand the meaning of the text. That's it. I want you to see it for yourself. While they were talking, verse 15, and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went 
with them. So undoubtedly, they're discussing all of the nonsense of the testimonies of the women, right? Because that's what they said. This seemed to them like an idle tale. It was nonsense. But we're gonna see this even later on. They said some of our women have come and told us these things. They still kind of think it's nonsense. In verse, um, if you look at verse, um, uh, verse 11, go back to verse 11 of chapter 24. It says, but these words, what, how'd they respond to the words of, of, of this testimony? These words seem to them to be a what? An idle tale. It, it was nonsense and they did not believe them. So they're discussing this. They're confused. This seems to them to be nonsense. They have no idea what's, what's actually happened. And in verse 15, it says, Jesus himself drew near. Now, the way that that's written in the Greek here, it says Jesus himself, the emphasis is this is really him. This is really Jesus. Jesus himself. He's, he's drawing near. He, he comes near to them. And, um, and, and so at this point, this would be a common situation. There would be many people who would be walking and traveling during this time, especially in light of the Passover. They'd be traveling back to certain places. And so someone else, another traveler coming alongside and walking with somebody wouldn't be an uncommon thing, okay? So this is what's happening. In verse 16, please note, it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they're discussing, they're confused. They don't know what's going on. Jesus himself, it's really him, draws near. This is the resurrected Christ now, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so this was the norm after the resurrection. And it really clearly displays God's sovereignty in opening the mind, the eyes to the truth. I mean, you can't get around this. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him until later on, he's gonna show them the scriptures and then he's gonna open their eyes. And so the, the, it's clearly displaying God's sovereignty here. And um, we've already seen how they didn't believe in the resurrection. They weren't expecting him to be raised from the dead. God in his sovereignty is keeping them at this point from recognizing him. You wonder why he would do that at this point. Why, why do it at this point until a little bit later when he opens up the scriptures to him? And I think it's an example also for us that the scriptures, God uses the scriptures to do this great illuminating work in the mind of, of his people. Verse 17, look at it. It says, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Isn't it like Jesus to ask questions he already knows the answers to? He said, what's this conversation? And, uh, and so this is what he does. And the, dues, the two disciples, how they respond to this, if you look at verse 17, they stood still looking sad. So Jesus asks the question, what are you guys talking about? And these two here stand still and they're looking sad. Undoubtedly, they're sad because of what they're discussing, but you know how it is when you're sad about something and somebody asks you about it, you get even more sad that you gotta explain what you're sad about. And so they're even further despondent that they have to rehash what they are already feeling sad about at this point. 
And they couldn't believe, verse 18, that this man hadn't heard about this. Look at verse 18. It says, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that had happened in, this, in these days? In other words, this Cleopas answered and said, essentially, how have you not heard about all of this? You know, have you been living under a rock? And again, he's not just referring to the resurrection. Actually, he's not even yet referring to the resurrection. Because you have to understand, he wouldn't expect this traveler to know anything about the resurrection at this point. We know that the Jewish leaders, they attempted to hinder this information about the resurrection, right? Uh, keep it from spreading. Um, the resurrection is still fresh. This just happened. Um, the guards and the Jewish leaders wouldn't have spread this information. And the disciples were up in a room discussing whether or not it was true. So he's not saying, Cleopas is not saying here, haven't you heard about the resurrection? He's talking about far more than that. And he's gonna bring up the resurrection, but it's not what he's talking about quite yet. And so we, we see this here that he's discussing with them, verse 14, remember, go back up a little bit. All these things, that's what they've been discussing here. And if we go back down to verse 18, that's what they're referring to. Have you not heard about all these things that have happened in these days? meaning everything about Jesus of Nazareth that's taken place, all these things, all of them that happened in Jerusalem since Monday. So they're the saying, are you the only traveler to Jerusalem who's come during the time of the Passover who has not heard everything that's taken place since Monday? And, um, and so verse 19, Jesus says, what things? <laughs> yeah, I heard about all these things, what things? And he knows exactly what things they're referring to. And so here's where what things they were referring to, the things that they were referring to comes out. Verse 19, this is what they say. The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all of this, now it is the third day since these things happened. Now, if you look at verse 22, when we start with moreover, that's where they're gonna present this new information. In addition to all of this, we, our people have told us he's raised which would present new information, they thought, to the traveler. But we're looking at verses 19 through 21 here. It's explaining all the things that they were discussing, all the things that they asked the traveler. Has he not heard about these things? Jesus, a man from Nazareth, it says in verse 19. We know that's true. It says a prophet. What's a prophet in the scriptures? One who speaks God's truth. We know that's true. This is what the woman at the well said to him in John chapter 4, 19. Man, I perceive that you are a what? Prophet. Verse 19, that he was mighty in word and deed before, all, before God and all the people. This was displayed over and over again by Christ, right? His authoritative teaching, mighty in word. 
and a display of his divine omnipotence and all of his miraculous works, mighty in deed and in word before God. He stood before God and he was approved by his father and he was mighty even before all the people. And so verse 20, though despite all of those things that were true about Christ, that he was a man from Nazareth, who was a prophet, who spoke the truth of God with authority, did miraculous works. He had God's perfect approval and he proved it to all men. Here's what they did to him. Verse 20, the chief priest though and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and be crucified. They crucified. These are all the things that they had been talking about. These are all the things that they're asking this traveler if he knows about. So despite all of this proof of divinity and messiahship, despite all of it, somehow he was delivered over to death. Though we thought he was the Christ, though he proved it over and over again, despite all of this, the rulers, the religious leaders, in Jerusalem, they condemned him to death. They condemned him to death. We can't make sense of this. They're confused. We can't make sense of this. We don't understand. And so he says in verse 20, he was condemned to death and they crucified him. He was crucified by the chief priests by the religious rulers. And so at this point, we come to the conclusion that I've already told you about earlier. Verse 21, right? We, we've seen him do all these mighty works. We've seen him do all these proofs. We thought that he was the Messiah, but the chief priests, the rulers here in Jerusalem delivered him over to death and they crucified him, which leads us to this conclusion. Verse 21, how in the world could he be the one who we thought would redeem Israel? We're just confused. How could he be the Messiah? Verse 21, but we thought he was the one to redeem Israel. This doesn't make any sense. There's no possibility of a dead Messiah. This man failed, he fell short, he didn't prevail over Rome. In verse 21, that's exactly what they express. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We hoped, he showed promise. He showed great promise. But all of this hope was shattered at his death. It was shattered. All of this hope was shattered even thinking that he had been overpowered by Rome. How could a Messiah who God's power was behind be overpowered by Rome, not even knowing that Jesus, which is why we've taught it so often, that he was always in control. He had divine control at every point of his death. He was always in control. He laid his life down willingly as a sacrifice. He was not overpowered. And so they thought that Jesus would be the one who would overthrow Rome and yet to redeem, he laid down his life. Now listen now, look at this. Look at verse 20, 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Isn't that interesting? 
They use the word redeem here. You know, listen, listen close, okay? Listen close. People in Israel would expect that Israel needed redemption. Redemption means, to redeem means it require, it's requiring to pay a price, okay? To redeem required paying a price. From the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, they knew that Israel's redemption would require a price to be paid by the coming king. They would, it would require a price to be paid. But they had no idea that the price that would, needed, would need to be paid would be his own life, right? So they're confused about this. They didn't know the price would need to be the perfect substitutes very life as a substitute for the penalty of sin. So this is what they say, verse 21, we'd hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, to pay the price as the king, to overthrow Rome. They're just confused. They don't understand that the real price was that it was his own life. The necessity was for him to die in order to pay sin's penalty right? And says in verse 21, yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. In other words, time has passed. It's confirmed. He's dead. He's dead. It's been three days, right? We got no hope. This is permanent. And uh, so now they have more information though for the journeyman more information that no one else would know. Look at verses 22 through 24. Moreover, listen to this now, journeyman. This is, this is all confusing for us, but now there's even more confusion. Let me tell you some information that you don't know. Some of our women, notice our women. This is part of their group. No one else would know this information besides them. Some of our women completely amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Notice a vision of angels, not real angels. Verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. So what's being said here, listen close now is they're saying there's more now we're even confused about. This was among our disciples. These ladies, they came, they went to the tomb. They didn't find the body, verse 22. Some of our women, they, they came back. They told us they went to the tomb early in the morning. When they came back, they said they didn't find the body. His body was gone. And so... We're confused about this. They had seen vision of angels, a vision of angels, right? And then verse 20, 22, or 24, I'm sorry. Some of those who were with us, who's that? That's Peter and John, right? So they came back, they told us, Peter and John, our very own leaders, our disciples, they went to the tomb and they found it, as the women said, the body was gone, but who, was, who, who did they not see? Jesus himself. And so in other words, what they're saying here is we don't believe this because our very leaders didn't see anything for their own eyes, except that Jesus was gone. And so 
At this point, they have no idea what to believe. They're so confused. They expected Jesus to be this, and something else happened. They expected Messiah to to do this, and something else happened. They're confused. They're hearing things. They're experiencing things. They have mixed emotions. They have no idea what to believe. And the only things that are gonna provide clarity, what Jesus chooses to use to provide clarity, which we'll see next week, are the scriptures being explained and God doing his sovereign work in opening up their minds. This is what Jesus will do over and over again to provide clarity. And so we end here today on just this, on this confusion. Confusion. And you know, I think this is extremely relevant. No, we don't live in this same situation. This is a very unique time in redemptive history, by the way. Okay, you say, how can they be saved if they don't believe in the resurrection? This is a very unique time, right? They're, they're alive while all of this is actually unfolding. They believe Jesus is the Christ. They don't fully understand every aspect. You know what's such a great blessing for us is that we live in the age of the church where we have all of this completed for us and interpreted for us. The rest of the New Testament after the gospels interprets everything that took place. So you understand why he needed to die, that he didn't come to overthrow Rome, etc., because you have that interpreted for you in the rest of the New Testament. They're living in a very unique time and they believe he's the Christ, but they don't have full understanding of all that, uh, what all that means. And again, the way that Jesus can provide clarity is through the scriptures and through his sovereign work. Now, I think this is really relevant because I think we live in a day where more Christians are confused about what's right, about the teachings, about who Jesus is, about what the Bible teaches, than they are clear about it. I think we have more confusion in the church than we have any type of clarity. I think people vacillate between their experiences, between what they think the scripture teaches, what someone else has told them, and they have no clarity about what to believe, about who God is, about who Christ is, about what the gospel is, about how to live for him, about what the scriptures say, about how to interpret any kind of passage that's in front of them in the scriptures. There's just so much confusion. And I wanna tell you that the method doesn't change here. The way in which you will have clarity is by seeing the scriptures for yourself, by them being explained to you, and by God doing his sovereign work in your mind and in your heart as the scriptures are open to you. And you should go nowhere else for clarity. You should go nowhere else for clarity, but to the scriptures and ask God to do his sovereign work in you. So we're gonna see Jesus do that next week. We're gonna see him explain the scriptures and do his sovereign work in the mind of his, minds of his disciples. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We ask you by your great mercy and grace to do what you are gonna do for these disciples. I pray that anyone in this room this morning who is confused, who's been confused about what's right about what the scriptures teach, about the gospel and how it works, about what Jesus really came to do, about who he is. I pray that they would look to your word, 
that you would provide clarity and illuminating, uh, illumination for their minds and their hearts. And by your spirit, that you would sovereignly open their eyes and bring about clarity and conviction. I just think about, I can't wait to get to next week's text where Jesus, the great, the greatest expositor who's ever lived, explains to them the scriptures and what their response is, is that their hearts burned while seeing the scriptures, while understanding them. And I pray that we'd be people who, when we hear the scriptures explained, our hearts burn, we're convicted, we have clarity. And by your sovereign work, we'd be those who have understanding and can preach it to others. God, do this work in us. Thank you for this great text. What a vulnerable text. As we see after the resurrection, your disciples being confused and you come in to simply provide clarity. Do that for us today in Jesus' name, amen.